Hello, welcome to the Markets Politics Podcast. I'm Matthew Shaddock, and I'm joined, as always, by Patrick Flynn. But this week, we have a very special guest, the nation's favourite pollster from Ipsos Murray, <laughs> Kieran Pedley. So Kieran's going to be here to discuss the crazy week of polling in British politics we've had over the last week. So, Patrick, we know how the financial markets have reacted to the government's latest plans. I guess everybody's seen what the polling thinks of it. What about the betting markets? Any big changes there? Yeah, I mean, it does not look good for Truss. Um, it's been nothing short of a disaster, really. Um, so we put up a few markets to help us, help us track this, and it's now more likely than not that a vote of no confidence in Truss will be triggered before the next election. Um, Although, just, just to break in there, the rules at the moment are that she can't be challenged from a year of her being appointed, is yes, that right? Yes, um, but, I mean, as we know, as we've seen before, the 1922 committee can change the rules as and when. Yeah, we saw that in the last days of Johnson hanging on, didn't we? That apparently yeah, they can really change those rules straight away if they want to. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, she, she's insulated technically for, for 12 months, but I'm not sure, you know, being able to survive on a technicality is going to be a big lifesaver for her. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's also basically 50-50 whether she even makes it to the end of 2023, which is a pretty remarkable position for a, a new prime minister to be in especially when she took office like a few weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, obviously trust is in trouble, but the person who seems to be even more trouble right now is the Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng. Um, there's been quite a bit of betting on whether he'll survive the year. What's what's that saying at the moment? Yeah, there's been quite a lot of speculation on whether Kwarteng will be the kind of sacrificial lamb of this, uh, this government, but it would have to be a pretty big U-turn from trust given kind of how in sync they presented themselves as. Um, our markets currently suggest about a 26% chance he'll be gone as chancellor by the end of the year. Um, and just putting that into context, excluding kind of interim chancellors like Nadim Zahawi in the last days of the Johnson government and those who died in office, if Kwarteng leaves before the end of the year, he'd be the shortest serving chancellor since 1782. Wow. Yeah. I mean, actually, that number, that chance of him being evicted by the end of the year was actually trading at 40% at one point yesterday. Uh, now, today, as we speak, stands about 24%. So people seem, um, I suppose, a little bit more confident he'll be staying on. Um, but there have been some massive moves in the, the betting on the next general election, haven't they, just in the last week? I mean, tell us about those. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've been speaking over the last few episodes and Labour seem to have been getting shorter and shorter in some of these markets. Um, so Labour's now up to a 62% chance to win the most seats at the next election. This time, last year, that figure was... 32%. So it's gone up 30 points in, in 12 months. Um, but to be honest, even 62% seems kind of on the low side, given the state of the polls right now. Um, obviously, we'll discuss this with, with Kieran in a bit, but we had that YouGov poll this week giving Labour a 17-point lead. Um, of course, as I keep stressing, you have to look at how many 2019 Tory voters are actually moving to Labour rather than yeah. Which ones are saying don't know. Um, but even if you account for those undecided voters, the Labour would still have a lead of about 11 points in that Uber poll. Um, and what we've also got to consider is that there's no like right-wing vote for the Tories to squeeze. There's no Brexit party. There's no UKIP on any significant percentage of the votes. And yet the Greens are still polling around 7% for YouGov. Um, if Labour were able to squeeze up to even 4% at an election, that's like a yeah, I mean, there's, that was a big, uh, I mean, Kieran, you were at the Labour conference. I mean, the green agenda, I mean, they really are playing that quite hard, aren't they? I mean, I don't know whether that's just a political, uh, you know, move to try and attract those green voters in the election. What, what do you think? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, in our most recent polling, which was taken before and um, before Labour conference, uh, we had uh, Labour ten points ahead, so by forty points to thirty. And in that poll, we had the Greens on eight. So I mean, wow. it's not unusual uh, to see the Greens. In, in the high single digits at yeah. the moment. The, one, one thing I would say is that you know, we did see that in, 20, in 2019 as well. I think in the round, summer, spring and summer of 2019, we had the Greens around that around that sort of margin. And of course, in the end, uh, that they, they just under 3%. So um, historic precedent suggests um, that the Greens tend to get squeezed as a general election approaches. So I think that, that may well benefit Labour. But of course, with party loyalties being as weak as they can be at times, we shouldn't take that for granted. Yeah. I mean, although, Patrick, you were saying you thought 62% Labour to win yeah. most seats was on the low side. Yeah, yeah. I'll make a public confession. I backed the Tories <laughs> this week. Um, because Just my general um, feeling about these kind of situations is that it's much more likely that people are going to overreact. I know the news looks terrible for the Tories, but things could change very, very quickly. I'm not saying they will. Uh, so I'm always trying to take the, you know, the idiotic, perhaps contrarian view in these situations. So not that I'm recommending anyone else should, should do that. But also, I actually wanted to free up a bit of money to bet on something else, which we'll talk about later in the week. We've got uh, later in the podcast, the uh, Brazilian election coming up. Um, but Kieran, let's just talk um, a little bit more about the polling. Um, Patrick, you wanted to make a few points about where Ipsos stands in relation yes. to the rest of the industry. Um, I just had a few like nerdy polling questions and <laughs> um, specifics about, about Ipsos. In like looking back at the last few elections, so like general election, European Parliament election in, in 2019, and I guess to a slightly lesser extent, the 2017 election, Ipsos have consistently been one of the best performing pollsters. Um, I just wanted to know what you do differently that you think distinguishes you from, from other polling companies. So I think there's a couple of different things. I mean, the first thing to bear in mind, not that I would necessarily apportion this as a reason for our accuracy over others, is, is that we do still do our voting intention polling by telephone as opposed to online. So that's probably the major methodological difference um, that we have over others. I'm not suggesting that everyone must go telephone, but that is an important difference. And then I think in terms of the numbers that we produce, we've obviously worked very hard to try and make sure our, our samples are representative. Um, that's an ongoing battle with, with, for all pollsters, um, particularly at the moment, age and education being, you know, particular, you know particularly important um, because we know there are big dividing lines uh, in politics. And one of the things that we don't do is wait by past vote. And again, I, I'm not suggesting that this works for everybody. You know, everyone has their own methods that they that they develop over time for their own reasons. Um, but I think very much an Ipsos policy almost is that whilst wanting your sample to be politically representative, by which I mean, you know, when you ask how did you vote last time, in an ideal world, you'd expect, um, you know, recalled vote at the last election to be broadly what it was. Um, as a matter of course, we don't wait back to that if it isn't, which carries its own risks at times. Um, but also, I think it's just on the basis that sometimes people misremember or don't tell yeah. you the right thing. And you know, some, sometimes in trying to correct what looks wrong, you end up making things a bit worse. So our, our policy is very much, yes, telephone, but, but also uh, you know, to try to make things demographically representative and let past vote do its own thing. But, um, you know, we're proud of our record, but not complacent about it. I yeah. think, you know, you're only as good as your last election and uh, <laughs> we'll dine out on those as long as we can, but we're, we're very aware that more, more are to come. Let me just ask something. Um, Patrick, you wrote a very good article the other week about um, how perhaps a lot of the polling shifts are really just moving around from don't knows to their previous party or the other way around. Yeah. I mean, just, just explain 
Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's not all of it, but but right now, based on I, I was looking at like Yuga polling over the last last few years, and it seems like about a third of Labour's lead right now is coming from those 2019 Tory voters that are now undecided. Right. The gap between 2019 Tory voters that were undecided and 2019 Labour voters that were yeah. undecided. Um, like that, that Yuga poll this week, it, there was a gap of about 18 points. So I think it was about a quarter of 2019 Tory voters said they were undecided and only about eight, 7 or 8% for Labour. And obviously, well, it's not obvious, but YouGov doesn't reallocate those voters according to how the rest of that sample. Um, yeah, is, is that the same with Ipsos? Or you just treat don't knows as don't knows, or so, so part? No, no, not entirely. I mean, so our polling will show when you ask when when you start and say how would you vote tomorrow if there was an election tomorrow, you'll get around one in five to one in four even sometimes 2019 conservative voters saying they don't know. So it is a large number. I think anybody that's looking at voting intention polls at the moment needs to appreciate that because if there's that uncertainty in such a big voting group, then maybe things could shift quickly in the in the future. But we, what we do with that group or anybody that says they, they don't know or that they, um, or that they'd rather not answer, um, we ask what we call a squeeze question, which is to, to say, well, who would you be most inclined to support? Yeah. And that's just to try and get people sort of off the fence. And I haven't got the figures in front of me from where we end up after that, but it does go into the sort of mid to low single digits in terms of numbers yeah. of undecideds um, once you do that. Now, that isn't to say that completely fixes the problem of, of, of 2019 Conservatives being unsure, um, but it's not quite the same as we take one quarter of that vote and just chuck them out. Yeah, yeah, like we, yeah. we do try and get them off the fence and a large number will say, oh, actually, you know, I might be inclined to vote Conservative. This is one other thing, point though I'd make on these, um, these 2019 Conservatives being on undecided my view has always been that uh, for a long time in this parliament i thought well the lead will narrow because those people will quote unquote come home to the yeah. conservatives the closer we get on on reflection i think that might be something we need to be cautious about assuming because we know from 2019 that a lot of people voted conservative for the first time so a lot of that now i haven't got every, every uh, this is like a sort of um speculation in many ways that's good on, we like that carry on on my part but we don't know this for a fact but it may well be that a large number of these 2019 conservative undecideds are not necessarily people that are particularly committed uh, to vote a Conservative in the long term. Perhaps they are former Labour voters uh, who, who have who have jumped for reasons of Brexit and Boris and all the rest of it. And you can't assume that they'll come back. But you also can't assume that they'll vote Labour either. It might be that some of them just don't show up at all. So, look, I think we have to watch... The short answer is we have to watch the numbers carefully over time. But I think that the, the two things can be true at the same time. One is that the lead could be soft that Labour have. It could be volatile if, 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 because we know that there's this uncertainty with what is a large group of voters from last time. But it also could be that, look, that those those ties that bind them to the Conservative Party are very short-lived. I mean, I think I remember Boris Johnson saying, either on the steps of Downing Street or, or elsewhere, that, you know, thank you for lending me your votes. Um, maybe it was lent and it won't, won't come back. So we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, I mean, often people will cite the, you know, historical pattern that governments sometimes recover from midterm, you know, polling dips. I guess, as you're saying, this could be, there's reasons to think this could be different, right? Apart from anything else, we've got essentially got a new government right now. It's not the same government that's going to be running for five years. Um, so I'm, I would be very cautious about relying on that sort of historical pattern repeating itself this time around. And we, and we haven't had like a series of 
four or five year parliaments where we can really test that hypothesis, yeah. right? I mean, I think we know 2010 to 2015, it looked a bit like that. There were other issues with the polls, of course. But um, yeah, that, that, that sort of followed that formula of Labour being ahead mid-Parliament and the Conservatives winning. But of course, we've had much shorter parliaments since then where it's all a bit different. So um, I think from, from a Labour perspective, and maybe we'll come on to Labour, there are reasons to be concerned, but there are reasons to be cautious about, uh, and not complacent about their lead because of views of the party, which again, maybe we'll get to. Um, but at the same time, I, I wouldn't just assume that because the, the, the Conservatives can just come back by almost by kind of proxy or almost by default, because I mean, ultimately it will depend on how they handle the issues that matter to voters. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about Labour. Um, do, do you think the current polling situation is just purely a case of conservative weakness or are there some signs of, of Labour strength there as well? To answer that in two ways, I mean, I think we've obviously had a lot of news in the last few days, right? And that, that dust needs to settle to sort of try and understand both what the impact is of this recent financial turmoil on the Conservative brand, but also, you know, do the have the voters noticed that this Labour conference that I think most people would say, uh, most journalists would say anyway, that it's gone quite well. So we'll have to sort of see where that nets out. But I do think there's evidence that Labour's polling is um, as much, if not more, conservative weakness than Labour's strength. Um, one data point I'll use to sort of illustrate this point is that something we ask regularly over time is whether or not the Labour Party is ready for government. You know, do you agree they're ready for government or disagree? And um, in the summer, I think it was in July, 37% agreed Labour were ready to form a government and 43% disagreed. Now, there's good and bad news in those numbers for Labour. That 43% that disagreed is on the lower end of what we've seen um, since Labour have been in opposition since 2010. So much less hostility towards a, a Labour government, if you, if you see what I mean. But that 37% is kind of similar to what they, what Ed Miliband and Jeremy Corbyn may have registered in their leaderships, and they obviously lost. And certainly a lot lower than the figures David Cameron was getting, around half agreeing, and Tony Blair could be as high as 6 in 10. So I think that the jury is very much out on, on, on Labour. Um, but at the same time, when we ask things like economic competence and things of that nature, I think I'm right in saying 63%, um, I need to check, um, told us in, in June that they thought the Conservatives were managing the economy badly. And you have to go back to sort of the last days of Gordon Brown in 2010, um, where you know, around 59% said the same there for that Labour government, before, to, to see a time when, when an when a incumbent government was seen as doing so badly. Um, on the economy. And there's all sorts of other stats I could throw out at you about the economic pessimism, which probably aren't necessary. So I think there's definitely a sense that the Conservatives not doing well. Labour, I think, less hostility than there once was, but maybe not completely sold on them. Now, what we need to see, of course, is that what is the you know consequence of the events of the last week? Um, you know, we, we don't know that yet, so I, don't, I wouldn't want to speculate. You said something interesting, I heard you say, um, off air before, that... Uh, you thought there'd been a big shift in the way political journalists were viewing the situation. Just, just tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, it's a very sort of online social media bubble kind of thing. But I mean, when you look at the lobby, which these are the people, political correspondents and political editors that sort of follow politics, it's very noticeable two things this week. One is that they almost as one seem to be very highly critical 
of the Conservatives' economic strategy and the fallout from that. And the, I, I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to I'm not going to chime in on whether it looks bad. But I, you know, other people that are more qualified than me can say um, they seem to be as one very critical not only of the government's reaction in terms of policy, but also from the comms aspect. I think you know, I've, I haven't heard a lot of Liz Truss's interviews this morning on the local radio, but it seems to be wall-to-wall criticism yeah. from lobby journalists. And that's noticeable. And what, what's also noticeable is that um, they almost on the flip side with Labour, there seems to be this consensus that Labour had a very positive united conference, Kistama sounded confident and you know, there was a feeling that maybe, you know, for the first time Labour looked like it might be, um, if not on course for government, you know, a credible alternative. Now, just because the lobby thinks that doesn't mean that the public will go on to think that. But at the same time, if, if the newspaper journalists that cover politics do reach that sort of consensus, that's that's not great for the Conservatives, obviously, because they're the people that write about politics and they're usually the main way that sort of uh, the public hear about it. Yeah, so yeah. so I, think it, I think it is important. There's a lot of, um, I've heard a phrase said a lot in the last couple of days, trust will be out by Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the alternative around 10%, is it on the markets right now that uh, she won't even survive till the end of the year? Let's have a look. I mean, obviously, we've talked about the logistical problems of just removing a prime minister yeah. in that short space of time and getting somebody else in. I mean, I, I tell you what I think might be worth a bet. If you, were back, if you thought that was going to happen, right, you've got to think about, will the Tory party find someone they can really more or less install straight away without a member's vote? Um, who would that person be? And to me, it's fairly obvious it's Sunak. Um, if MPs really got together to try and remove yeah. trust and just have a coronation straight away, because Sunak is the one man who, well, he's the best bet for sort of reassuring the markets, right? Because yeah. he apparently, if you look back at some of his husting speeches, he pretty much called what happened correctly. He's the face of economic competence. Um, 25 to 1, Sunak, Prime Minister on the 1st of January. What do you think of that? That's not bad. That's I'd rather, not bad. Anyway, I'd rather back that than 10 to 1 trust yeah, to, yeah. to go. Yeah. That's because I, I just think it's so obvious it would be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can kind of see the kind of disparities in what you're saying by comparing people's price on next prime minister with next Tory leader. Yeah. So you look at like on next prime minister, it's a lot of more established figures like Sunak is behind Keir Starmer, it's Sunak, Boris Johnson, Ben Wallace, Penny Morden. But when you look at the next Tory leader, it's Sunak and then Kemi Bidnock's there as well. Yeah. James Cleverley's there as well. So it's kind of like the kind of less experienced figures when people are looking at who might be, you know, an opposition leader after mm-hmm. An election loss, but whereas next UK Prime Minister, it could be someone who takes over if, if Truss is ousted. I do find the the Sunak question, if we can call it that, quite interesting because I think it, we don't. It's not uncommon for governments in the past to, shall we say, administer tough economic medicine to use sort of that jargon and, and to sort of say and to front it out and to say well actually i believe this is necessary um i think what did that just say it was something along the lines of you know the medicine may be painful but the patient requires it to live or something like that, <laughs> yeah. right i mean that, that was at the beginning of um roughly at the beginning of the tories 18 years in power rather than um sort of 12 years in maybe that's different but like it, it's one thing to say that and there is evidence of that working in the past and look if the economy did do well 18 months from now you'd imagine that liz truss would take a lot of credit for that because she's been highly criticized for, for, her, for her policies and if they work she, she owns them whether they whether they work or don't right i suppose that the challenge and that the unknown for me watching this is um, given so many Conservative MPs, in fact, more than backed trust, backed Rishi Sunak, 
who was critical of these policies for reasons you just sort of yeah. outlined, how united are they going to be behind this strategy? Yeah, to what extent, basically, is the Conservative Party going to fall behind this economic strategy or demand changes? And if those changes are demanded, what are they? What will be the response from Number 10 and so on? Now, I don't know the answer to any of those questions, but I think that, that as much as anything, the unity of the Conservative Party feels like it's one of the big significant questions as we look to the medium term. Because if you know, divided parties tend to lose elections, but if they are united, she does have a majority, a solid working majority in Parliament. So, you know, if if six months from now if the economy is looking a bit different, may, maybe you know politics can look different too. Because there's one thing we all know: it it does change. It, it can change very very quickly. But um, yeah, unity of the Conservative Party big question mark for me. I think. Yeah, I, I was just wondering, like, if some of the maybe maybe one of the mistakes that Truss is making right now is assuming that kind of there is public appetite for that kind of hard choices kind of narrative which which might have succeeded maybe in the past when we, when we look at the 2010 to 2015 period there was i guess at least some support for the kind of austerity measures but it seems like the public has probably shifted to the left on the economy over the last like five six i mean I, I think the the big question because there seems to be murmurings around spending restraints or cuts yeah, or whatever yeah. language you want to want to use and i think the big question if that is the answer uh, the government's answer, I should say, to how they square the circle of you know, the current market concern. Um, we're going to really need to see what de what the detail is there, because um, you know, I was at Labour Party conference this week. I was on a panel um, for policy exchange on healthcare and the NHS and things of that nature. And the one, you don't get many people in the healthcare system saying, "Well, what we need is like yeah. spending restraint." Quite the opposite. So, and I'm sure many many other departments, you know, education, post COVID backlogs and things, would be saying the same thing. So. I would uh, be very sceptical that sort of significant spending cuts or, you know, or slowed spending would be anything other than very, very unpopular. So if that's the answer uh, that the Conservatives have, they might be in for a bit of a difficult time, I think. Yeah. Patrick, we had a couple of questions on Twitter for Kieran. Do you yes, wanna... we do. We do. Um, so this one's from Pip Moss. Uh, he asks... Oh, hello, Pip. <laughs> he asks, what are the best trends or signs for the Tories right now? Is there anything at all that they can be positive about? There actually is. I think there's two things I'd say. And I, again, I'm, I'm very conscious that, without repeating myself, that a lot's happened in the last week of Labour conference and the market turmoil. So maybe these things are about to change. But there's two things I would say. The first is on when we ask people, um, the public, who do you trust on the key issues? It's not true that Labour are more trust, at least on our numbers, it's not true that Labour are more trusted on absolutely everything. Until recently, we've had the Conservatives 15 points ahead on growing the economy. Again, that may well change over the last week. Um, and we also had them ahead on, of Labour, but I think it was six points on, on controlling inflation. So on those two points alone, you could maybe see the genesis of a, of a campaign where the Conservatives go big on you know growth and, and managing inflation and maybe tax cuts and Labour's going to raise your taxes and all the rest of it. So there could be the germ of an argument there. Whether that's been destroyed in the past few days, you know, to, to be to be confirmed. And I think the other thing, which again, I'd say the same thing about too, is Keir Starmer. I mean, his leader satisfaction ratings are, until this point, so-so. I mean, his net satisfaction rating, which is minus 14, and that, that just means that I, I think it's... Uh, Something like, uh, what is it now, 45% of the public are dissatisfied with the job he's doing as Labour leader, 31% satisfied. And that, that creates a score of minus 14. The average going back to nine, minus, uh, 1980 for a leader of the opposition is minus 12. So he's about average. Most of those lose. Uh, you know, David Cameron and, and um, 
Tony Blair, who won from opposition, it's a rare thing, the last 40 years, were both net positive before they before they did so. And again, Kistama may well end up net positive, who's to say? But I think you've, you've still got a, a Labour Party that until now people have not been sure about, and the old arguments about the Tories delivering growth have been receptive. But again, if the last week has, has completely destroyed that, then those indicators um, um, sort of go away. So I think... Um, it's not, yeah, it's not. It's not to say that there is nothing for the Conservatives to cling to, but but this economic strategy has to work because um, you know, clearly there's a new government. They've, they've very much decided to own this new change of direction. That we haven't had a general election. This hasn't been explicitly voted for by the public. So if it works, they'll get the reward. If it doesn't, they'll reap the they'll reap what they sow. I suppose. Yeah, you're mentioning Starmer's. Um ratings i was looking back at what ipsos had had for him i think you you asked he's satisfied satisfied right yeah so, yeah so he was net plus 16 two years ago a year a year later so in other words one in september 2021 he was minus 25 and you were mentioning the latest score had him still negative but mm -hmm. i wouldn't be at all surprised that that got quite close to zero next time that gets asked um so you're right these things can change very very quickly and uh, be worth the interesting to see and i think like the, the, the sort of the the the, the pro starmer point would be i always say he, you know is he taking inspiration somewhat from david cameron i mean if you go look if you go and look at david cameron's leader ratings as leader of the opposition um they don't track directly but there is a similar pattern where he starts off quite positively you know it's all the kind of hug a hoodie and vote blue go mm -hmm. green I'm, I'm sort of butchering those actual quotes but it was all that sort of stuff and then gordon brown takes over and there was the sort of election that wasn't and the, but just before that there was very much you know cameron was in the minus 20s um and the financial crash happens and that election that wasn't happens and he sort of owns the moment and the rest, as they say, is history. And you sort of, I guess the opportunity for Keir Starmer right now is can he own this moment? You know, we're in the middle of, whether you call it an economic or political crisis, cost of living crisis, whatever label you want to put on it, we're clearly in a state of flux yeah. at the moment. We've talked about the level of undecided conservative vote from last time. So, you know, perhaps Keir Starmer can take inspiration from David Cameron as he, as he looks to enter number 10 in the future. Do you, do you think there's necessarily even that, big of a risk for Stalmer, even even if he did go into the election with a negative approval. Because like, it, it seems over the last the last few years, like when you look at the UK, the US as well, it seems like it's just whoever's the least unpopular rather than who's who's the most popular. Like a politician having a, a positive approval rating seems quite rare now. Well, it, it, it is very much relative, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I, I, I know that Boris Johnson was around, I'm pretty sure he was around minus 20 or something going yeah, into yeah. the last general election, but Jeremy Corbyn was on minus 44. Yeah. So these things are relative. There's no rule that says he has to be net positive or, you know, the king's going to tap him on the shoulder and say, sorry, you're not, you're, you're not net positive with Ipsos, so you can't come in. I mean, that, that should be all the <laughs> The power, the power we would have. Um, but, you know, it, it's useful to contextualise, I, I guess, is probably the way I'd say. Like, it's, this is not, at the moment, a Tony Blair-type leader, you know, and... Uh, Maybe that's impossible unless you've been out of office for 18 years. I don't know. But he can certainly be optimistic about the way things are going. But at the same time, I would still caution that people aren't blown away by Labour yet. And look, let's see what the coming months bring. Um, let's see what post-conference polling brings. But um, it is as much, if not more, conservative weakness, I think, at the moment. Yeah. Um, we, have, we have one more question from, from the audience. Um, from Adrian Smith, he asks... The specific question is what's happening with the voting intention of women over 40-ish? Um, I guess the more, the more general question is 
Are there any demographic groups that are particularly strong for Labour or have shifted to Labour since since the last election? Well, I'm going to dodge that particular question. My, my, my perception is that um, uh, Labour have a strength with women over men, but I'd need to double check what our figures actually say on that. Um, I, I certainly don't know about women over 40, but um, I, I can look, I can come back to that maybe another time. Um, yeah, look, I think Labour's core strength is in this sort of the quote-unquote obvious groups. It's, it's in younger voters, it's in graduates, it's in people that are on social media, it's it's, it's in renters, um, it's in people in sort of in, in urban areas and so on and so forth. You know, and, and I think that part of the challenge Labour have got, which at the moment they seem to be navigating reasonably well, is how to sort of retain those with a sort of inspirational message. So that they've been talking about going green, haven't they, at this, we, I think we mentioned earlier, at this last conference, whilst also trying to win over those sort of... Um, to use some shorthand, older, more patriotic Brexit voters may be in towns in Northern England. I mean, that's a very, that's a simplification of the challenge they've got, but yeah, that is the sort of navigation that they're trying to, to pull off. And, and in many ways, the Conservatives are trying to pull off the reverse, right? So it's not, it's not, it's not, even, and that's where the blue wall stuff comes from there. So it, it affects both parties. But I think um, whilst the economic news is, is, as bad as it is, if that continues, and if the, if, if the Conservatives' traditional representation, uh, to a reputation for economic co um, opt um, competence does collapse, then in many ways it almost won't matter because, I mean, like, yes, of course, you'll have certain demographics that you're stronger with than not. But I think if, if the Tories lose that reputation for economic competence, then the, the, the maths to some extent will take care of themselves, I think. Before we finish this little segment, Kieran, I, would, I know you, you occasionally have a political bet. Uh, yeah, occasionally. Um, I only mention the ones I win, though. So yeah, yeah. Sort of I'm the same, yeah. Position um, of sageness. The, I, just, I just noticed some bets this morning. The last traded price on, a lab, on Labour getting a majority in the next election implied there was a 35% chance they would do so. Um, I'll be honest, I think that's crazy high. I mean, given uh, the scale yeah. of the... Ch I mean, which, which side... Do you think that's too high? Or? I, I, would, what's the, I would sell that, I think. Yeah. I, I think... I, the thing is, I mean, it's you look back at the last, you look back at elections since the war, and there's only two occasions where there's been a national swing of ten points or more. So that's in 1945, so immediately after that war, and in 1997, after 18 years of conservative uh, rule. Now, again, as I keep saying, there's no rule to these things that says it can't happen. I mean, if, if it was going to happen, I guess an election where there's been a global pandemic, there's a load of uncertainty in party loyalties, um, you've got a cost of living crisis and a new prime minister that makes it worse, if that's what's to happen. Yeah, maybe those are the conditions for, yeah. um, for, 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 a, for a large swing of that nature. But I'm all, I, 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 that gives me enough pause for uh, concern. Where, where my sort of expectations are oscillating between has been like, you know, the Conservatives with a reduced majority slash largest party. I'm now starting to wonder if maybe Labour as the largest party is, is more of a possibility than I pre previously yeah. realised. But I've got to say, I would still want to see where Liz Truss's ratings are I in the new year. I mean, I don't, I don't really buy she's going to be replaced this year. Um, I think I just don't see how the Conservative Party would manage to do that and survive calls for an election and uh, and there are, there are downsides to that too does boris johnson want to come back i i, I think well, let's wait and see where we are a few months from now when things settle down if they do before we start sort of looking into what might happen yeah we have one more question um we've ventured into the meme market <laughs> and we've created a market on whether stun will be 20 points ahead in the next few weeks <laughs> oh, um so our market is on what the largest labor lead will be in the next in the next three weeks uh, for context, that, that Yuga poll with, with a 17-point Labour lead was, was the highest that we've seen in this parliament. Do you think that'll go higher? Hmm. I mean, I, 
and it's certainly close, isn't it? Um, I'd certainly, I'd be very, very surprised if it hit 20 points or more. I mean, look, when it's 17, clearly it's possible. But um, I mean, a 20 point margin, you're talking what, like 45, 25 or something? Um, that's good maths there. But um, I, yeah, I mean, it would be highly symbolic if it did happen. I think anything that reinforces this lobby view at the moment that trust is in trouble and uh, Labour look like a government in waiting is going to be incredibly damaging for a party that was looking for a honeymoon, not not for things to get worse. Um, 20 feels a bit high, but hey, unexpected things happen, don't they? Kieran, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So chaos in the UK political markets, but actually the biggest betting market potentially of the year, political betting market of the year is happening this Sunday. Round one of the Brazilian presidential election. What are the markets saying, Patrick? Yeah, strangely, um, Lula is still hovering around the 70% mark in the markets. So that's about one point. No, not on the spot, 1.4. Yeah, 1.4. He's, he's sometimes hitting sort of 1.45 at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that, that's despite his, his polling position getting stronger and stronger in the last few weeks. To me, this is giving me memories of Biden 2020 where the kind of markets are failing to account for how strong the poll lead is for the for the opposition ahead of this right-wing populist incumbent. Um, so yeah, I've also had a small bet on Lula to hit 50% on Sunday. It's not yeah. likely to win, win in the first round. Um, so just to summarise, we've got Bolsonaro, the incumbent, essentially a populist Trump-like character, I guess, sim simplest way of describing it, against Lula, who used to be president, mostly his support is mostly coming from the left, two incredibly sort of polarised candidates, right? And Lula is, on average, around 10, 12 points ahead. Yep. That's just in the first round. Now, there is a chance that he can win the first round. He gets 50%, he wins. In fact, on The Economist's current tracker, they have him at 51%. Right. Um, but if it does go to the second round, any hope for Bolsonaro there? I mean, it, is, it doesn't really look like it. The, the Lula's kind of lead in the second round has got larger and larger. I think the last time I looked, it was about 60-40. Yeah. As you say, with two kind of massively polarised figures, you can't imagine there'll be a, a lot of switching between them. Um, but yeah, like, I, I, I still think that Lula's kind of chance of winning winning in the first round and hitting 50% and kind of eliminating the need for a runoff is still a bit underestimated. Um, in, the, in the last 10 polls that I've looked at, once you exclude undecided, he's at 49.7, so he's almost there. And you've kind of got another another candidate of the left, so Ciro Gomez, um, who's on about six or seven percent. All that's kind of needed, if you're taking the polls as kind of gospel, is for Lula to kind of squeeze squeeze some of those voters, and he, yeah. he's over the line. Yeah, it seems more likely that he'll actually increase his lead in the second round rather yeah. than the other way round. Yeah. And so, you know, I just I I may be missing something here, but one point four, one point four five, Lula honestly seems like one of the greatest political bets of all time. And we were talking about, for Bolsonaro to win, this is going to be the biggest polling miss that I can ever remember in a major national election. I mean, there have been a few in by-elections and US primaries and so on, which have been like this. But for someone to overturn this kind of lead, I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you put down the, the mismatch between the betting markets and the polling to? Any ideas? I mean, perhaps, perhaps it's companies in Brazil that are taking a lot of money on Bolsonaro and then using, like, markets that are active active in Brazil and the UK to kind of hedge that risk. But I think perhaps people are, are thinking that Bolsonaro could kind of overturn the election result.
But again, that's something you've got to look at the at the market rules and on markets. We're going to settle based on what yeah the election winner are. rather than yeah. who ends up being president. Yeah. So even if Bolsonaro does, and Bolsonaro has talked about you know trying to do something after the election yeah. if he's not happy with the result. But that, sh with any luck, that won't happen. But if it does, and it clearly uh, Lula's won the election, then for markets purposes at least, it should yes. be nice and clear cut. Yeah. One thing, I mean, it's funny you mentioned women voters in the UK piece earlier. I mean, one thing that comes to mind about why the betting markets might be a little bit skewed. Uh, candidates like Bolsonaro actually draw most of the, well, men are much more likely to vote for Bolsonaro than yes. women. Yeah. And that's the same with Trump. Um, and it turns out men are much more likely to bet. And I often wonder in markets like that, whether that could be just skewing things at least to some extent. Yeah. Um, if your women aren't participating in the market, which I, yeah. I don't know what the Brazilian betting markets are like, but if that's the case, and that could be one of the reasons why we get this kind of, this, this kind of weird mismatch. The only thing that you can hold on to from a, Bolsonaro backer point of view is that you're going to get some there's some hidden Bolsonaro vote. People aren't answering polls. We saw something of that in the last US presidential yeah. election. Trump did over overperform the polls, but Bolsonaro is going to have to overperform the polls by, like I said, a historic amount to win yeah. selection. Yeah, like I mean, Biden was polling I think about seven or eight points ahead and ended up winning the popular vote by about four or yeah. five. So it was only like a few points. Like Lula's lead over Bolsonaro is about. Points or yeah. So, I mean, if you look back to other historic polling misses, you've got uh, UK 2015. Yep. Poll said it'd be about level. Tories won by about seven. So that even yeah, that's not yeah, enough. Yeah. And that was like one of the biggest of all time. Yeah. Okay. We are agreed for once. Yeah. <laughs> so, Lula, really could be one of the great political bets of all time. We'll find out possibly on Sunday, Monday morning when we get the results of round one. We've got a few weeks left before we get to round two if that's needed. That's it for another week. Thanks so much to Kieran Pedley from Ipsos Murray for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thanks as always to Patrick Flynn. If you like the episode and you watch us on YouTube, please like and subscribe. And also you can follow us on Twitter at Markets Poll. See you again next week. Mm -hmm.